Well, I hope you have your cup of coffee um, poured and you are relaxing here in this time. And, um, you know, th- this message that I want to share with you has been something that's been on my heart for actually quite some time. And uh, I'm glad I get a chance to share it. You know, last week we finished up with the sustenance um, series. Next week is Palm Sunday, right? <laughs> and we'll see what that looks like. But we have today. And as I was praying through this and actually been thinking about this for quite some time, um, there's been something that's been on my heart for a while, and this is just the opportunity that I have to share it with you. And sometimes I come to the Word of God, and I see different themes that just ride through the whole of Scripture from the beginning to the end. And sometimes that's what helps me to categorize uh, my thought processes, how I study, how I pray through it, um, how I view God, how I view the world. And, and I want to boil today's down to these three eyes, if you will. The eyes have it, right? The image of God in us the identity and the influence. So image, identity, and influence. I'm going to hit those last two um, pretty hard. And so as I, as I think about this, obviously in my mind and in my heart, um, right, I go back to the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, we see God's design for what he had intended, right? And as he talks about creation, right, we know that in the first part of Genesis 1, he's, he speaks and things are created, speaks, speaks, speaks. But then it gets down to humanity, to men and women. And something unique is different. Or is, this, is more, this is unique. It says that in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. That when he came to create humanity, humanity is the one thing that is created in his image. And we bear that image. And so he states that here. That he, let us create mankind. Let us create mankind in our image. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them both male and female. He created them. Right? The original creation of humanity is in the image of God, the almighty living God. And so that's the original intent. The image of humanity to reflect the glory of God. And then he goes on to say this. That God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So not only are, are we bearing the image of God, we have identity as, as His, as co-rulers with Him. And then in that shows our influence. We are meant to have an influence or an impact over all of creation, which is God-given. And it's born out of our identity as we bear the image of Him. And now, if you know your Bible, that's chapter 1. And then chapter 2, he kind of tells the story and breaks down a little bit more of how he created mankind, right? And breathing life into them. And then you know in chapter 3, um, it kind of all goes off the rails. That in the garden there, there's this temptation and Adam and Eve fall into sin. And at the very end of chapter 3, right? So he's, he's already confronted them and all those things. And he kind of kind of kicks them out of the garden. 
And then he placed this cherub in them with a flashing sword to guard the way back to the tree of life that they no longer can have access to where they once had access to. And everything changed. But I believe humanity still bore the image of God, which is value, that speaks to the value of humanity. Yes, our identity changed and was influenced or was, was changed. Our influence no longer was the same because we weren't co-ruling with him. But we were kicked out. And I thought about that, right? Before this happened, right? They had free flow of the garden, right? They could go anywhere. They had backstage passes, if you will. And I'm not sure if you've ever been in a situation like that where you've been to a concert and you had this backstage pass that gave you access to where not the general population could go. Right? And you come to these bodyguards and like, hey, you can't go back. They're like, hey, I'm with the band, right? And they would let you in. I've had a chance to some, to, on a couple of occasions, to um, have access to box seats. These luxury boxes at sporting events where it wasn't because of my name. I was with certain people who got me into there. But if you take away that pass, you take away that badge, I didn't have access. It wasn't in my name. And in the same way that that we have identity that's been changed because sin entered the world. And we're marred. We we have mud on us that we can't get off. We're rusted. we're, We're tainted. And it's called sin. And even if we try the best we can, we can do nothing about it. We can clean ourselves up maybe a little bit, but not good enough ever to get back to what was originally planned. Now, when I was a kid, um, and I think about this, it, it's kind of crazy. My brother, two years older, um, was into collecting beer cans, right? So believe it or not, in our culture, we can kind of put a value to almost anything. And so my brother and his fr- older friends were into collecting beer cans. And we would go out to all these dumps— um, out in South San Jose and just dig and do these archaeological digs to find beer cans, right? And they even had the Beer Can Collectors of America Club, right? Just crazy. So we would go out and we would find these beer cans. They have books about beer cans, all this crazy stuff, right? And we would find these gems, right? These jewels, these treasures. And then we would bring them back and we would work as best we could with navel jelly and, and, um, and toothbrushes and clean them up to the best we could. But they still would be rusted and tainted. The best we could do was still short of the original intention of what it was supposed to be. And yeah, it might have looked a little bit better, but it never got back. It never got back to the original design, the original colors, without rust in perfect condition. And that's the reality of our lives. That we cannot recreate what God had done originally. We don't have the power. We don't have the ability. We don't have any way to get back to what was God's intention. And then in addition to that, right, our identity is, is changed. We go from having an identity of with God and in this kingdom rule, if you will, to being people of the world, being people who are tainted with sin, who are broken, who are hostage to what the enemy is doing. And that's where we sit. You see, but God had a plan from the very beginning. As soon as we blew it, he had a plan in place. 
And that plan is Jesus, right? And so as I look to the, the New Testament, I see this theme of identity and influence coming, over, coming, coming again over and over through many of the writers. And as I was praying about that and thinking about it, the first writer that I was thinking about who wrote much of the New Testament was Paul. Paul spoke to this time and time again. And his phrase that he loved is a phrase called, in Christ. In Christ. That was his way of saying, hey, there is an identity that we can get into to get back to or be like the original, is being in Christ. It's identifying with what Jesus did in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we see both this, um, these issues being talked about, both identity and influence. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 14, it says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Right? That the motivating factor is love. And why wouldn't it be? That's the motivating factor of Jesus who knows the value of his creation, especially us who were made in the image of God and love compelled God to do something about it. And then that's the same model that we should have, that it should be love that motivates us. Paul uses this word compels, controls us. It should be love. Not what others think about us, not trying to prove something, but surely and, and purely the love of God and the love of Jesus should compel us. And he goes on to write, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. And as we understand what it means to be in Christ and identifying him or taking steps of faith to be in Christ, everything of who we are changes and should change, especially our perspective on how we see things. Like this was true for Paul, right? You know, Paul, before um, the, the amazing experience he had with Jesus on the road to Damascus, had a worldly view of Jesus. He didn't meet their expectation. He didn't meet the expectation of the religious leaders of the time. And so what he was doing, he was acting out of his worldly flesh and he was punishing the church. But then when he met Jesus and he had this radical experience, it changed. His identity changed and his influence and impact surely changed. And so he knows what he's talking about when he writes this. We no longer have a worldly view, or we should, should not. If we're in Christ, our perspective of how we see things should change. And that's what he's talking about here. That if anyone is in Christ, and that's his phrase, the new creation has come and the old is gone, for the new is here. And here is God, the only one who is able to go in and fix things completely, going in and recreating, if you will, his creation back to original intention. Back to the image it should be and clarifying the identity that is available to us in Christ Jesus. And he says that here. Right? That we are a new creation. We bear his image. He takes care of everything we could never fix on our own. 
And as I think about this, I, you may have heard me share this illustration before. I, I had the, the pleasure of being at the um, at, at Candlestick at the San Francisco Giants' last home game. And then that next season when they opened Pac Bell Park. And it was just radically new. Created a new ballpark. Same team, some familiarity, same logo, but brand new. And that's what God does. And this shouldn't have come to a surprise for the people who are hearing this and reading this. If these people had been told anything about the, the, pre, the, the Old Testament and were familiar with that, they would have known there were promises. There were promises long ago through the prophets that someday a new, a new thing would take place. Isaiah 43, 18 and 19 says this, Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. And now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Right? God was promising there will come a day when I will recreate. I will renew. I will make things new again. And he's faithful to his promise. And he's doing that and does that in Christ Jesus. Right? That's the same type of newness that Jesus would say on the night he was betrayed when he took the bread and, and, the, and the cup. And he would say that this is the cup, this blood of the new covenant. New. New, being realized in his presence. Or the writer of Hebrews would talk about, like we looked at last year, pretty in-depth, chapter 8 and chapter 9. That there's a new mediator. There's a new covenant, and that's Jesus. And therefore, if a new covenant comes, then the old one is obsolete and being, is done, and being done away with because new has come, and new has come in Christ. And so Paul uses this phrase, in Christ, over and over and over again. And then there's a time that we'll look forward to at the very end of everything. To this ultimate promise that God made that, that the Apostle John records. And he says in Revelation 21.5, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Right? That there is this newness that will fully be consummated someday. And right now we're in the midst of the beginnings of some of these things. For God is making new, making new in the lives of people every day. His kingdom rule is being extended. And we look forward to that day. But until then, because of the identity we have in Christ, we have an impact or an influence that God is calling us to make. It says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. Right? All this is from God. He's the only one who could take care of what we couldn't take care of. And then as we have this new identity in Jesus Christ, he says, now you're back with me in this rule, in this work that I endeavored in the very beginning. Come alongside me, my children, and work on my behalf. And he entrusts this ministry to us, the ministry of the gospel, living out our lives both in word and in deed, what he would have us to do so people can come to know him. 
But again, it's all because of the identity that we get in Christ that is from God, not from ourselves. And then he empowers us by the Spirit to live out that influence and impact in our inner circles. And all this is from him. Right? What became so marred and broken so long ago, I don't really think that God could fully throw away. Because humanity bears his image and is valuable, and he loves us. And he is intent on making sure that there is a way to be back in relationship, identity with him. And we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. And we implore you, on, God, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. Um, uh, another ad- um, adjective to what it means to be in Christ. We are the righteousness of God. We are in Christ. We are his. We're giving this new identity and then also empowered to be his ambassadors. To have that influence, that impact in the world. Right? And you know ambassadors, right? They represent the homeland in a foreign land. This world is not our own. We are ambassadors now representing the kingdom of God while we are still here until the day he comes back or the day he takes us to be with him. But we have influence that's wrapped up in our identity, which is just like Jesus. Right? His identity and his character of who he was was indicative of what he does, how he saves, how he creates. And he sets that as an example. And then Paul has other phrases that I just wanted to list here before we went on for a few minutes. That as you read through Paul's writings, he has so many other descriptors that help, to, uh, help us identify and understand what it means to be in Christ. We're redeemed, we're free, forgiven, a new creation. We're co-heirs, children of God. We're more than conquerors. We're his body, we're justified, we're sanctified, we're loved, we're friends, we're alive, and we're worthy of suffering. Because he suffered. And that's part of the identity that we bear and that we live out, that we are worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And these are just some of the descriptors that Paul has in his writings that help to identify what does it mean to be in Christ. It's an incredible list. But see, Paul's not the only one who would write of such things. As I was praying about this and thinking about this, Peter says almost the same thing. He uses different metaphors, but it's the same thing about dealing with our identity and motivating us in our influence and impact. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, it says this, As you come to him, the living stone, who is rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, Jesus. You also, like living stones, are being built into spiritual houses to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
right? The metaphor that, that uh, Peter's using here is a house and building blocks for a house, right? Jesus is the cornerstone. And we as living stones are being built into this house of God where the Holy Spirit indwells in us. Right? So Peter's metaphor for our identity is the house of God. And each of us make up a portion of that home. And then God, through the Holy Spirit, resides in us. And we have this identity. We're the tabernacle of God, where he comes to meet, where he comes to reside. And then Peter goes on, right? Out of that identity, we have an influence. We're a royal priesthood. We're offering sacrifices and praise that are acceptable to God because of who we are in Christ Jesus. Right? It's empowered by him, not by us. And as you come to him, the living stone, he would go on later on in that chapter and say this, but you, you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You see, once you weren't a people, but now you are the people of God. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Right? So he's taking that same imagery of of a home, of a house, the house of God. And now he's saying, you're chosen people. You're chosen. You're loved. You're valuable because you as a human bear the image of God. And then those of us who believe, right, we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's favorite children. And it's tied amongst all of us. Well, Jesus first, right? But, but then all of us. Out of that identity comes the influence and impact God's calling us to live out wherever we are. To live this out. Right? And I love that phrase. It says, but once you, you, know, you weren't a people. And I, again, I think I've shared this maybe before in this setting, but I always love that movie um, On the Waterfront with Marlon Brando. And there's this line in there that, that's cool that his character says, I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Instead, I'm a bum. That's what I am. Right? And I think of that phrase for people who have rejected the cornerstone. But for those of us who accepted it, we're more than contenders. We are more than conquerors. Because of what he has done, and we've identified with him, and we are in Christ. We are now an acceptable building block to be built in and to indwell the Holy Spirit. And now we're the people of God. Just like in the beginning when, when God said, I have a responsibility for you to live out, to, to, to rule over. And now I believe he says, you know, I, I have a responsibility for you to share to help extend my kingdom. My kingdom in the hearts of people who are still rejecting me. Because you, you are a royal priesthood. You are my ambassadors. I have entrusted you with this responsibility. 
And then Peter goes on with this. He says, dear friends, I I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, right? Those who have not heard yet. That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. Right? That, that the way that we speak, the way that we love people, the way that we interact, our words and our actions put them to shame. But hopefully it's shame in a good way that they would come to faith. But I love what he says in the previous verse that, that again, remember, friends, you're exiles here. You're foreigners. This is not your home. Live as my ambassadors. And, and as I think about that, right, I think about this world that we're in, this world like, like this perception that should change from a kingdom to a worldly view. You know, people who are still living, these pagans that he says here, those who were last to hear is, is the definition of that word, they haven't heard. And so what do they do? They live by the standards of the world. And I don't blame them because that's what they know. But we... We've been instructed in holiness and have been called to live by kingdom values and purposes. And to live by those as ambassadors in a foreign land. There should be some contention. There should be some, some, hey, like, why don't you come party with us anymore? What's up with you? You've changed. Yes, because my identity has changed. And because of that, my, my, my purpose has changed. And my perspective has changed. And can I share that with you? It should be noticeable. And yes, they might mock. But I pray that in the midst of their mocking, they may just somehow turn a corner to ask a question. Hey, what do you have that I don't? Because you know we live in a, in, in a crazy world that's radically different from the kingdom of God. You know, I, I dare bet you have a little extra time on your hands. <laughs> so I want to give you a homework assignment. Sometime this week, read Romans chapter 1. And, and I'll let you cheat a little bit. Start from like verse 16 to the end. Maybe you've never read that. Maybe it's been a while. But if you want to see vivid imagery of the world we live in, which looks like the world we live in, you read that. But I also think about that in the midst of something that that Paul wrote, that, you know, that's the way we used to live too until we came to faith and our identity changed. And because our identity changed and our purpose changes. And I'll finish with this. Jesus, right? Of course, he had words for us. His identity for us is disciples, learned ones, students, right? And Luke 640 says that the student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like the teacher, 
right? As we are being discipled ultimately by Jesus through the scriptures, by one another, we become more and more like Christ, his disciples, his followers, like a chip off the old block, right? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? We should be looking a lot like Jesus now than ever before. Why? Because we reflect the teacher. And as I was thinking about that, I I thought of um, Coach Bill Walsh, right? And the West Coast offense, and I'm going to give him credit for that, right? A Raider fan giving props to the 49ers, right? But when you look at Bill Walsh and the coaching tree, these people that took what he taught and tweaked it for their personality and put it into that, Mike Holmgren, George Seifert, Andy Reid, Dennis Green, John Gruden, and others. Right? You watch their offenses and you know like, wow, that looks remarkably like what Walsh was doing. Yes, because that's where they learned it from. A student, when fully trained, will become more and more like his teacher. And as disciples, as we study and we grow and we become more and more um, understanding who he is and in the scriptures and we allow that to work in our lives, we become more and more like Jesus. And a new command I give you, he says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, that identity by the way you love one another. And not just one another is the family of God, but we also know that we're to love our neighbor, right? Those things are hallmark of who Jesus is and what he did when he was here. And the more and more we live out of our identity and live into this influence and impact, we look more and more like Jesus. And the world should note that there's something different about us. And it's nothing that we did on our own. It's because he took the initiative and did what we could not do. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He took people who knew how to fish for fish and said, you know what? I'm going to change your identity now that you fish for humanity to save them. And you will grow in that. You will learn. And he did that for three years, teaching them until the day that he decided to say, here, you know what? The baton is all yours. You, empowered by the Holy Spirit, who dwells in you with that identity, will be empowered to have influence and impact in this world for the sake of my kingdom, and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and all throughout the world for my kingdom, because you belong to me. My spirit living in you will will bear an influence and impact in this world if you will be faithful and obedient that people could never imagine. And with that, let's pray. Father, I, I, I thank you for your words. I thank you for what you do in us and have done in us that we cannot do your creation that you love so much, humanity that bears your image so valuable that you stopped at nothing to come and save us. And then because of who you are, you come in and and behold a new creation. 
you took care of the mess that we could never take care of. And you restored our identity. And you gave back to us a purpose that was so long ago in the garden that looks forward to a city that has no ending. And God, I pray that during these times, in this chaotic world that's so against you, God, that we would, we would be faithful to live out your promises, your words, your challenge, your truth for the sake of your kingdom. God, I pray that our inner circle would hear, would notice and see. And God, even dare bet um, they would ask questions and that we would have an answer for the hope that is in us, this Christ Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.